I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. And this is our first episode. The very first. So, Katie, how excited are you about Mission Interplanetary on a scale of 1 to 10? Definitely around a 13 or so. I was going to say, there's at least 15 for me, I think. This is going to be awesome. I think about crews, and our crew is really wonderful to be with. I mean, there's Lance Garavi, who is the person who had this idea and said, okay, let's have this podcast. It's going to be about, well, Andrew, you're better at saying exactly what it's about. Yeah, we talk about the big questions around humanity and space, but really it's it's about people. It's about that human side of space and space exploration and where we might actually go. Um, and I hope actually we bring a little bit to these discussions that goes beyond just the science and tech to talk about the people, to talk about the aspirations, to talk about the hopes, and maybe some of the pitfalls about us becoming an interplanetary species. When Lance thought about, you know, we've got these big questions, you know, and it's not just about what what's the newest hardware, what's the hardest thing about building a rocket that'll take us to Mars. It's not about the hardware. It's it's not about, you know, those kinds of challenges. It's really about the opportunities and the and the mysteries that people, real people, want to investigate. And he said, well, you know, we're in <laughs> We're in the 21st century. What would we do? We'd have a podcast. And then he set you and I up on a podcast blind date. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And it was really clear to me that we were both really curious about the future, but in different ways. Yeah, and you've said this uh, a number of times, but I love the fact that we come to this from different perspectives. So I've never been up to space. Um, So to me, you are the expert here, um, but I can ask questions. (laughs) Well, coming from physics, but also your philosophical background of you know, trying to understand what this means in the larger scheme of things and what does it mean for people and, and why, why do people make all, all the difference? Um, so but we I should get back move to on our... to... <laughs> <laughs> so today on Mission Interplanetary, we are asking, what can an asteroid tell us about the history of our solar system? And I know like a tiny bit about that. I mean, just having been part of as my astronaut training the Antarctic search for meteorites. Right. Where meteorites are, are like little tiny, tiny asteroids. I mean, they're pieces from that asteroid belt. Yep. They're kind of all made up of the same thing. But then there are special objects. There's a lot to know. And it's important in terms of understanding what our origins really are. Right, right. And of course, in this episode, we're going to be talking about a really large, glittery special object. Um, But before we get there, I want to talk about obsessions. So every week we're going to be talking about what we've been obsessing about. Katie, what's been your obsession this week? Secrets. Mm, Tell me more. Oh, oh, sorry, you can't. (laughs) I don't actually have any, but other people do. So, you know, the Perseverance rover is on Mars and it's designed by this like wild and wonderful group of people. In fact, I love when they were, you know, coming, you know, getting ready to actually land on Mars, they would put out, you know, the people who made Perseverance. And they're they're they all are very multidimensional in terms of their scientific background, but then collectively they have this sense of fun and and mm-hmm. of wanting to make sure that 
people know that people left this little trail. And so there, right. I mean, uh, this week I discovered the bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been obsessed in. It's kind of like the bumper sticker you would see on the back of somebody's car. It might have like a dog and a cat and, a, you know, or I see ones with little astronauts on them. Of course, I love them, right? right. Um, but this ha- Perseverance's bumper sticker has like a little tiny rover, one of the first ones, Sojourner, and then the next one and the next one. And then there's Curiosity. And now there's Perseverance. So cool. So Perseverance has a bumper sticker of rovers on its bumper. The most far out bumper sticker, literally. (laughs) And you, Andrew? So I've actually been thinking about space hotels because there was this big thing about Space Hotel 2027, this company that claims they're actually going to build this space hotel where you can go up and stay in these space rooms, I guess. Um, I can't believe that this is really going to happen. Is it? Are are people really going to be staying in a space hotel in 2027, Katie? 27? I think it's possible, but I think the fine print in this case is going to be really important. Yep. Okay. Um, let's just say that the accommodations were sparse. The right. rooms were not big. And I think you'd better check how big your room is going to be in this space hotel. Right, right. But, you know, I would go. Right, right. I would go in a minute. You would, you, would, you would go even if the rooms are no bigger than the International Space Station sort of accommodations? You no. Know, well, first of all, you don't need as much room in, th- in, in floating I around. Guess, in I guess you've got three dimensions to float around. You really in. don't. And I would go in a minute. I mean... It's just going to be the place you close your eyes until you can wake up and go explore the rest of the place. I guess. We'll just stick the guests to the walls. Why not sleep in space? Okay, well, let's get to our guest. Today on Interplanetary, we're asking the question, why should we visit asteroids? Our guest is Lindy Elkins-Tanton, the leader of NASA's Psyche mission, a journey to explore the asteroid 16 Psyche. And I'm going to have to ask her what that 16 means. One of the 10 largest known asteroids in the solar system. Lindy is the vice president of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative, a fellow of the American Geophysical Union, and in 2018, she was appointed as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Lindy Elkins-Tantum, welcome to Interplanetary. Andrew, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you and Katie today. And it's doubly exciting because I think you are the persona that really captures interplanetary, being embedded and and in this leadership role in the interplanetary initiative. So this is doubly exciting for us. Well, and I feel like this mission is literally right around the corner. I mean, it's... came up so fast and it's just moving faster and faster. And so we wanted to get you before it was already gone (laughs) on its way. (laughs) Katie, I can't tell you how right you are about that. And it's, it's kind of silly to say, because what are we, we're still 21 months out from launch, but that really is right around the corner. We've got no time. We've got no margin left. Like our schedule is tight. Everything is scheduled to the minute. Our um, assembly test and launch operations starts in 103 days. I, I was just about to ask incredible. you whether you actually know the number of days. And the answer is obviously yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the different numbers of days. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Planets are the stars of our solar system. Well, I suppose technically our sun is the star of our solar system, but planets are in a way, the celebrities. School children learn their names, their order, maybe something about their properties, but asteroids aren't celebrities. 
they're like us, just these comparatively small, anonymous rocks floating in an endless void. So why is NASA, and specifically you, sending a spaceship to visit one? Yeah, you're right. The planets are the celebrities, um, but I feel like times are changing. I feel like the the days when planets were just the celebrities are past days. It's a leftover from when that's all we could really see with our telescopes. And now as our technology and our missions get better and better, we realize that the planets are so vastly outnumbered, it's not even funny. There are probably at least 2 million small worlds in our solar system. And right now we're down to eight planets. And so, you know, we've got a lot more exploring to do. So why would we go see these small objects? A lot of it has to do with our fundamental interest in understanding how we came to be. I think that's a pretty big enough question to motivate a science investigation. What? How did our solar system grow? What was it made of? Why is the Earth habitable? All these questions can be addressed by looking at the raw ingredients, which are the small worlds in our solar system, because they're all different from each other. The different regions of the solar system have different kinds of small worlds. They have different compositions. Some of them are just... Um, really raw materials, like straight from the nebula that formed our sun. And others of them have been heated up and, and, and more or less assumed the structure of a tiny planet themselves. There is so much to learn. So just say a little bit more about that. And I know we want to get to talking about psyche, but this to me is so important. Um, how, how do these r- lumps of rock tell us something about the Earth and the solar system? Where do they come from? What is the yes. background of these things? Where do they come from? Yeah. So, so imagine, imagine the very, very beginning of a solar system, any solar system. Where do they come from? They come from giant molecular clouds. There are these vast clouds of gas and dust. And by dust, I mean really tiny molecules, um, maybe organic ones that have a bit of carbon, maybe tiny bits of diamonds, actually, little mm-hmm. tiny, tiny fragments of, of little bits of minerals, but mostly gas. And Nearby, nearby, universally speaking, in other words, very, very far away, a star explodes. It goes supernova and it makes a gigantic explosion and it sends out this huge shock wave out into the giant molecular cloud, which then presses the gases together and they start to collapse under their own gravitation. They start to collapse and they start to spin. And what happens then is the middle of them begins to form stars of these Mm -hmm. collapsing regions. And so, first of all, how can we possibly know this? We actually see snapshots of this happening through telescopes. And the other thing is, something from that shockwave gets embedded into the giant molecular cloud, the little part of it that became our solar system, and we could track it. Wow. So it's it's like it's sort of almost frozen in time, so we can actually trace back to what happened. It's like a fingerprint. So get this, because this still blows my mind. I love telling this story. So in our solar system, at least, and we don't really know if this is true for all solar systems. It's kind of an important point, though. What what we end up with is a a spinning disk of dust and gas with the proto-sun in the middle, all the the gravity pulling that giant mass into the the middle, just like the giant mass, the same as it is today. The sun Mm -hmm. overwhelms the mass of the rest of the solar system. And then the materials in that dust and gas just begin to condense into little pebbles and little rocks, and then they accrete together, they clump together into planetesimals. They're, they're, they're tiny planets, planetesimals. Um, maybe just uh, tens to hundreds or a thousand kilometers in diameter, the size of a state. Maybe a big one is the size of Australia. Mm-hmm. And so here's where the fingerprint comes in. It turns out that, that certain kinds of supernovas produce 
a very specific radiogenic element, aluminum 26, the uh, aluminum with it with a molecular weight of 26 is, is radioactive. And it has a very short half-life. It's only about, um, I forget, it's less than a million years. And, and so, really short. Yeah, just really cut that <laughs> I, out. I, I love these super, time scales. <laughs> it's super embarrassing for me not to remember the exact number. Aluminum-26, this radiogenic isotope, is created by the supernova explosion, and it becomes a part of our solar system. And there's so much of it, and it's so radiogenic that when it gets incorporated into these growing planetesimals, they melt from the heat of the wow. radiogenic element. And so there's no aluminum 26 left. It's all burned up, but we see its remnants in the fact that the meteorites that fall to Earth now from the asteroid belt, some of them come from small worlds that completely melted in the first few hundred thousand years of the solar system. So these rocks that, that, that sort of um, we have in our solar system, they're actually the fragments of these sort of protoplanets. That, exactly. That, were there. Okay, so then this is really interesting. So you mentioned we have um, the, these meteors that, that land on Earth that tell us something about this. Um, so why then go out to the asteroids if we're already having this stuff raining down on us? Yes, yeah. It, it is true that we think that almost all the meteorites that fall to Earth in the present day come from the asteroid belt relatively recently. But we certainly don't sample everything in the asteroid belt. We don't know where the samples come from. And right. we don't know what they're like on a big scale. Imagine if someone handed you a rock the size of your fist and then told you to imagine what the Earth was from that rock. Yeah, it's a pretty big stretch. You, can't, you cannot actually do it. And so to really understand the bigger structure, and then also, I'm not that I, I do absolutely only want to talk about my mission, but there are other missions to small worlds, and we try not to talk about them very much, but there are small <laughs> worlds outside of the solar system. There, I mean, outside of the asteroid belt, there are small worlds uh, out um, orbiting with, with Jupiter. That's what our sister mission, Lucy, is going to go look at. There are near-Earth asteroids that cross the orbit of the Earth and threaten us. Psyche is not one of those. And then there's New Horizons out in the Kuiper Belt looking at these icy worlds for the first time ever. And, and the information that's coming in is incredible. And, it, and if you would just bear with me one second, I want to tell you the most amazing thing that small worlds have ever told us Please. and will ever tell us until Psyche gets, until we get to our Psyche. So this is going to stand for a few years until we discover something astonishing. So there are a couple of teams. One of them is, is Scott Shepard at the Carnegie Institution for Science and Chad Trujillo at Northern Arizona University. And another one is, um, is out of Caltech. And they spend a lot of their time looking for small worlds that orbit way past Pluto outside of uh, the known parts of the Kuiper Belt. They're really looking for the innermost bodies from the Oort cloud, which is the farthest population of small bodies. And we really can't see them yet. They're too small and too far away. But here's the thing. They found, I don't know, a dozen, something like that. I don't know the quite the number right now of these very distant bodies. And all of their orbits are lined up in a certain way that almost beyond the shadow of a doubt, statistically, they are being influenced by a larger body that orbits out past them. The only way they could be lined up that way is if there was another big planet way out past Pluto that we have not yet discovered that wow. is perturbing the orbits of these bodies. And they say that it's something like five to 20 times the size of the Earth. They call it planet nine or planet X, and they're searching for it right now. So if that is not a great small body story, <laughs> I don't know one. Although, you, you know, Pluto, we, we shove it aside, but now we need it again, like we want to know, right? <laughs> 
Right. Plus Pluto is still alive, isn't it? Because it still has heat coming from its interior. It still has, it has glaciers and mountains and ice fields. It's amazing. Something that's confused me, Lindy, is, um, so this is the metal asteroid or mostly metal asteroid that we're going to. And yet we also talk about these meteorites that we find on the earth being metal. Mm. And so why is it unusual that it's metal? Right. I'm missing that. Missing the metal story. So here's the metal story. The heavy metal story. The heavy metal. The part that makes us really cool, like rock idols, because it's a heavy metal mission. Um, You know, us middle-aged people, suddenly metal rock idols. Uh, So so this aluminum 26 story, right, uh, melts these planetesimals just in the first tiny instance of the solar system, really, if you look at it on a grand scale. And what happens is um, the primary, these primitive materials are partly iron nickel metal, and they're partly rock. And the iron nickel metal sinks to the middle and becomes an iron core. That's the same structure that the Earth has, Mm -hmm. that the Moon has. The Moon has a metal core, Mars, Venus, Mercury, all have metal cores, which we can never, ever visit. Some of these planetesimals obviously had metal cores, and some of them got broken up, and some of their little bits of their metal cores land on Earth, and we find them. They're iron meteorites. But when you look out into the asteroid belt with the telescope, and you're looking at the reflected light, and you're trying to figure out what all these objects are, out of maybe two, one point something million asteroids in the asteroid belt, we've only found nine that seem to be made of metal. It's really, really rare. Okay. And there's only one of them that's big, and that's Psyche. So it's an absolute unique object in our solar system. As far as we know, there's no other like it. So so then, as, as far as you know, it, it sounds like this is a, the core of one of these these protoplanets. I mean, is it just a sort of fraction of the core, do you think? I, I, how does it fit in with these early planets? Andrew, I wish I could answer the question of what psyche is and how it fits in. <laughs> so, so a couple of couple of really important things. I tell people whenever I give a talk about psyche, uh, and I tell all the data that we now have and the reasons why we think we know what it is or we have an idea. I'm really just about certain that everything I tell you now is going to be proven to be wrong when we get there because right. our imagination is never sufficient for what you actually find in space. Plus, the data that we've taken from Earth, it's actually self-contradictory. Psyche really from its density, the best we can measure, has to be largely made of metal. We don't really know what the rest of it is. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know where the metal came from. So the very simplest guess is that it's, it's a part of the core of a planetesimal that was melted and formed a core like I was describing with some of the rock from the outside still attached. Sounds like a kind of a simple, plausible story, the way I've been telling it. But there are a whole bunch of caveats. Here's one caveat. In order to create a psyche that has the core exposed and only a little bit of rock still attached, takes between four and eight destructive impacts with other objects and no constructive impacts, nothing that clumped it back right. together, which means that it's a very unusual circumstance. People run models of the solar system, and sometimes they don't make any psyches at all, and sometimes they make one. Hmm. So, it's, so it's a highly unlikely circumstance, and yet... That is the most likely hypothesis we have right now for what Psyche is, which makes me think we really don't know what it is. Yeah, but isn't this the beauty of science? Not only that you're discovering stuff that you don't know, but you could be wrong. I mean, mm. I, I, this, I, I'm sure this sounds counter to what so many people understand about science, but we love to be wrong because that's when you learn something new. Yes, and it's, it's also, I think, a test. It's a test of our um, fidelity to our science yes. to say very willingly 
this is our best guess. We really think this to be true and probably it's going to be wrong. And then when it's wrong to stand up and say it was wrong and here's our next best guess. That's kind of how knowledge rolls forward. Yeah. And one thing that I love is when you're trying to explain to people why we should go and what and what what you think is the is the the best story, the right story. Now, um, I want you to listen to, to the sound, Lindy. Do you it's hear the that? Sound of a book. It's the sound it's of a the book. Sound oh, of it's a our flip, flip book. book. <laughs> it's our flip book. <laughs> Lindy, you gave these to me, and they're still in my windowsill. And I, I love the fact that the proposal had to involve. I mean, you were just. It, you know, you know, they can't be carting all sorts of giant models into the room. Everything has to be on paper or computer. And that your, well, you tell it, your team came up with this way of talking. I love that you have those slip books. It just absolutely gives me chills. So we spent um, six years working on this proposal and proposing it through the many steps, the progressive steps of trying to win a big competed mission from NASA. And uh, it started in 2011 with the science hypothesis that was a real science groupies kind of science hypothesis. I could explain to you what it was and you'd go like, so who cares? But I will tell you that the group, little group of scientists who studied this cared a lot. And when we stood up to talk about it at the first conference, it was standing room only. There were hundreds of people in the room to listen to this talk and they were already lined up at the microphones to tell us we were wrong before I even started speaking. So it's the kind of thing that really got scientists super excited. And what we realized over the next couple of years, because you get so into your own head, that we had in mind this whole storyline that I've just explained to you, the dust and, and, and clumps together and it heats up from the radiogenics and it melts and forms a core and then it's impacted over and over and then part of the core is, is, is revealed and you can measure, you hope it's magnetic field, it still stays. That whole kind of story was in our heads and caused us to design the spacecraft the way we did. That's the reason we picked the science instruments so we could test these hypotheses exactly with the instruments that we chose, with exactly the way that they're going to measure things. Nobody else understood that. Nobody else had that film strip running in their head day and night. And so the, we had to be able to explain that film strip to engineers and people who were not immediately in our tiny corner of science and the whole review board and all the administrators. And it turns out you also can't always have a YouTube video in front of people's faces. And so we made flip books. We worked with this wonderful artist to make flip books so that people could sit there and flip the flip book and go, okay, so that's what they think they're measuring then. And that's what they think they're measuring then. The flip book was our way to communicate this film strip that had been running in our heads for six years. And you, so you've got to extend that story to the, the broader psyche mission because art and creativity seem to be central to what you're doing, complementing the science. I love the opportunity to talk about the art that we're doing. And um, it's been a passion of mine, actually, my whole life to, um, well, I, I guess I haven't quite put it this way before, but in the broadest sense, to trying to get people to realize that all the things we're endeavoring to do in our lives, assuming we are endeavoring to do something, uh, the endeavors are very similar. We're all humans trying to grapple with and interact with and understand what's around us. Thank you. Did, can I tell you, or did I ever tell you the story of, of the him, the celestial police? No. Fantastic story, which I really think that you need to hear. So, so in, uh, in, in right around 1800, there was a man named Bode who made up a mathematical expression that uh, correctly 
anticipated the spacing of the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, but it also predicted one between Mars and Jupiter. So it turns out this expression is totally meaningless. You can write a polynomial that has any number of, of, of zeros, any number of predictions, and it just, he happens to have found one that did everything but had one extra. But everybody thought it was real. And so this huge coalition of astronomers in Europe set out to find the missing planet. And they were, they were led by a guy in Germany named Franz Xavier von Zach. He was the lead. And he named them Die Himmelspolizei, the celestial police, because they were going to set straight the heavens that were disorderly and unruly and incorrect. And so they started searching. And uh, I think in 1806, maybe, is that the right number? They found Ceres. That's why Ceres is one Ceres. It's the first asteroid that was ever found. And they kept searching and kept searching. 1852, they found 16 Psyche. This was found by Annabel de Gasparis in Naples. And they kept finding asteroids and numbering them until finally they realized there was no planet there. And, uh, and so then a further realization that came on a little further was that Jupiter's gravity is so gigantic that no planet could ever have been there. And in fact, Jupiter threw so many smaller objects out of the way that Mars was starved and never got to grow up to be a big planet. Mars is what we call a planetary embryo. It's just a little baby planet because Jupiter starved it. And so all we have is we have this tiny little Mars and then some shrapnel, which really wouldn't have added up to even anything the size of Mars. So there never was a planet there. Mm. I know. It's enough to make you cry. It is. So awesome. So what are the three things you'd like to get from this mission? Like what, when you get there, and I guess it's going to be around Psyche for almost two years, right? Mm-hmm. What What is that news? I, I'm, actually, we know it might change, which is exciting. But right yeah. now, what do you think it might say, the news story? What do I think the news story might say? Uh, well, I will tell you the very first thing that I want to get out of it would be a news story with a headline, something like, People from all over the world look up tonight to see a new kind of world that humans have never seen before. That's what I want. I want that first close-up image to be out on the web and have everyone in the world want to see what that is and think about what this is, that there's a world way out there that we've never seen before, and now we're seeing it, and we're a better species for it, and we're understanding something new. That's really what I want the most. And In fact, we're setting up the data pipeline so that our images will be on the web available to everyone in the world for free within 30 minutes of our receiving them. We're not holding them back at all. In fact, we just went through this it's a quite a process to figure this out. So that's the first headline. And then, and then I would love for us to um, see shapes on the surface of Psyche that are unlike shapes that anyone has ever seen before, so that everyone in the world can look at it and go, what is that? That doesn't look like anything I'm familiar with. Let's stretch our brains. Let's see things we've never seen before. And then I hope that it is the core of a planet. And, and I would love to see that headline. And it was, wouldn't be the first headline. It wouldn't happen right away. It's going to take a lot of proving. Right our first and only view that humankind will ever have of the metal core of a planet. That, that would be a really great one. I'd love that. And this oh, wait, is, wait, I have to say one other <laughs> thing. Another one. one other thing. Here's one other thing. Here's the only headline that would be better than that. Psyche proven to not be a metal core. And in fact, is a kind of material never foreseen. That would be pretty great. What a wonderful way to uh, wrap up. That that idea that you're wrong, but you're wrong in such an exciting way that it opens up 
brand new vistas. I hope um, so. So so remind us all when this is all going to happen. When, when are we going to see these headlines? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are launching in August of 2022, proudly launching on a Falcon Heavy um, uh, in a collaboration between NASA and SpaceX. So that's going to be a really exciting launch, I think. And then we'll cruise out through space for uh, about three and a half years, and we'll get there around January of 2026. And we'll get approach photos. So it'll be a little speck of light, and then a bigger speck of light, and maybe it'll be a disk, and we're going to get a sneak up on it as we come closer and closer. We'll be sharing those photos and seeing it as we come closer and closer and begin to resolve information. And then we'll really enter into orbit in January of 2026. I, I, and I love the fact that, that you framed this as a unifying experience, not just for the scientific community, not just for America, but for everybody on Earth. That is the purpose of space exploration. Otherwise, we just shouldn't even be doing it. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Lindy, thank you. I appreciate you all so much. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Andrew. This was great fun. So most of us <clears throat> haven't been to space. I, I have. Yeah, I know you have, but most of us only experience space through the photos and videos we see. So we're used to seeing what space looks like. Second half. But what does space sound like? On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures. Podcast, audio format. Instead, you'll hear what space sounds like. In a segment we call Sounds of Space. Okay, Katie, so what do you think that was? Well, it sounded like something that was very stressed out, okay? Yeah. I'm just going to, I mean, it, seem, it seems like it wants to tell us something, but it just, I mean, it's just, it just can't get through. So I'm going to say it's about communication, maybe in a marriage, I don't know, but maybe it's, <laughs> it's communication. Communication in a marriage. Um, that was actually the sound of wind on Mars. And it was a recording that was taken on February the 22nd, 2021 by the SuperCam instrument on board NASA's Perseverance rover. And this is actually different than the first sound of the Martian wind you may have heard that was recorded on the rover's first solo Martian day. Oh, I heard about that. Because in the beginning... They, I mean, it takes a while to take the data and then really figure out what it means. Right. And that included the sound of the rover the first time. Right. And they, they managed to take that out. But isn't that incredible that we're actually hearing for the first time, really, what it might be like? And of, of course, I mean, I, people have already pointed out that you would never hear it because you'd have a spacesuit on. But if you had your ear out there on the Martian landscape, this is what you would be listening to. I mean, it makes a difference to me to look up at Mars and know that that's what it sounds like. So let's listen to that again. 
that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. If you have any questions, email us at interplanetarypodcast@asu.edu. And please do recommend us to your friends, your family, your colleagues, in fact, anyone you bump into. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative and Slate. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.